You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today is, say, the fourth Sunday of Lent. I think it's the fourth Sunday of Lent. Is it the third Sunday of Lent? Maybe that's right. What's that? Time has no meaning. That's right. Yes, in the post-pandemic world, it's not even post-pandemic yet, really. Uh, Time has lost all meaning. Um, And since we're still in Lent, as many of us probably know this, that Lent is, of course, uh, a 40-day fast leading up to Easter. But this idea of the 40-day fast is predicated on what story in the New Testament, any in the Gospels? Anybody know what story this is predicated upon, the idea of a 40-day fast? There you go, Tom. You get the gold star for Sunday school today. Yeah, <laughs> nice. It, finally, all those years in church paid off. Beautiful. <laughs> and so Tom's... I'm going to switch mics. This one's coming out. Or maybe you know what I should do. I could just do both at the same time. Does this look weird? All right, we won't do that. Okay. We'll just go with this one. So let's read the story of Jesus's desert trial, the temptation of the desert now uh, out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Jesus, of course, had just been, has just been baptized in the River Jordan. And the text says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. There's multiple layers of meaning to this story. The first and most obvious layer is the fact that this story is a reenactment of the Exodus narrative. Just as Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and then driven out into the wilderness, where he was tested for 40 days. So Israel was baptized, so to speak, in the Red Sea and then driven out into the wilderness where they were tested, not for 40 days, but for 40 years, we're told. And just like Jesus, Israel too was tested by hunger and doubt and idolatry. In fact, Jesus's response to Satan here are actually the exact same words. I didn't know this until I prepped this talk. These are the exact same words found in the book of Deuteronomy, where where Moses 
reminds Israel of their, of their desert trial, their, their wilderness, their, their sojourn in the wilderness for 40 years. These are the exact same words. When G, you know, Jesus's words, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's Deuteronomy 8.3, verbatim. Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses reminds the Israelites that God didn't let them starve in the desert. Jesus's words, do not put the Lord your God to the test, is verbatim Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses reminds them uh, of how they, they tested God by demanding that he produce water you know, miraculously from a rock. And then finally, Jesus's words, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is Deuteronomy 6.13, where Moses reminds Israel that it was Yahweh that delivered them from the Egyptians and not some foreign deity like like Baal or Asherah. The similarities are so striking between the stories that the meaning is obvious. Where Israel failed the desert test, Jesus passed. Therefore, Jesus stands symbolically here in the Gospels and within the Hebrew tradition as a fulfillment of the Exodus story. He stands as a, as a second Moses, a Moses that is leading his people into a physical promise, not into a physical promised land, like a, a geographic place, right? But into a kind of spiritual promised land called, called the kingdom of God, which shouldn't be misunderstood as heaven on high. Jesus's kingdom was a new world order. His kingdom of God was what the world would look like if God really ruled and reigned in the world. The, Jesus is the kingdom he came inaugurating and proclaiming was essentially love and justice itself. This, this inauguration of a new way of living in the world governed by love and justice and empathy and compassion and liberation, especially for the so-called least of these, the poor, the outcast, the downtrodden, etc. This is the promised land Jesus was leading his people into, and, and it was an exodus out of certainly, you know, sin, but it was an exodus out of a kind of religious way of living and being and into a more loving and Christ-like, God-like way of living and being. But the only way to understand that is by understanding the similarities between the exodus story and the story of Jesus's baptism and desert trial. Stories that mimicked each other this way was a common literary device back then. It's called mimesis. I've talked about this before, mimesis. This is, uh, or mimetic literature, mimetic meaning to mimic. Other examples of this in the Bible would be the Genesis creation story and how it closely parallels or mimics um, other early Mesopotamian creation myths like uh, the Enuma Elish. <laughs> It's a Babylonian creation myth that predates Genesis. Um, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, the, the, the tale of Enki and Ninhirsag. The story of Noah's Ark is actually a, almost a perfect retelling of the, of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which originates centuries before the biblical text, probably in ancient Sumer or ancient Babylon. Again, mimicking and, and Remixing popular stories into your culture, into your religion, was very popular back then in a way of ascribing authority, meaning to your, your stories. It was to say, hey, look, our stories are just like those stories that you all know. 
So our stories are also really important. <laughs> Specifically with Jesus reenacting the Exodus story in his baptism and desert test, this was a way of saying to the original Hebrew audience of Matthew's gospel, and to basically, this story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This was a way of saying to the original Hebrew audience of these gospels, hey, listen, this Jesus guy is really somebody. He's part of your story. You know, listen to him, therefore. Pay attention. He's got something to say. He's really somebody. Now, some will always hear this, this idea of mimetic literature, mimesis, and say, so does that mean that Jesus' story or the Exodus story are, are basically mythological and legendary and ahistorical? It's important to understand that such concerns, such questions are fairly modern and therefore not shared by the original audience of these, of these texts. It's not that they didn't think this was real history, it's that they didn't think of history like we do today. We didn't, you know, they, they didn't think of history as something independent of us, uh, that is objective and unchanging. History for them, as best as we can tell, was something more fluid and, and subjective. There's good evidence that those who wrote the Torah, some 2,500 years ago, the Hebrew Bible, um, they saw writing in the oral reciting of scripture out loud as religious rituals that had the power to alter the very fabric of reality and even history itself. In other words, these texts were not written just to document history, but to create history. Does that make sense? It's a little hard for us to wrap our heads around that. But you know, the written word and story was seen as kind of magical back then, specifically writing itself, the symbols of scribbles on stone or papyrus. I mean, that was, if you could decipher what that meant, it meant that you had the, this kind of spiritual power to peer into the symbolic world, that you could discern, you know, these kind of deeper aspects of reality and create reality. I mean, I don't think we think of language as being like that magical, but in the ancient world, it was kind of magical. So again, these, these stories, these, these ancient documents weren't written to merely record history, but to create history. It was a way of actually forming reality, creating reality by reciting these stories out loud in the context of a, of a, of a religious community. And these stories were written to be you know, recited out loud. They began as oral traditions and they continued as oral traditions. Back then, almost nobody could read pre-modern world was virtually illiterate. But these were oral traditions meant to be shared in community and to create community, create reality, create history. Um, so that's interesting, right? So these stories weren't seen as objectively true or untrue in a literal or scientific sense, as those distinct categories of thought didn't exist yet. They hadn't been invented. Now, obviously, this is a completely different understanding of language and history than we have today. And it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around that, but I think we can try. So that's the first layer of meaning here in Jesus's desert trial and its relationship to the Exodus story. But that's not the meaning I wanna focus on most today. The deeper level of meaning here, I think, is that Christ suffered like we all do. The deeper meaning of the story to me is that the God revealed in Jesus was a human being just like us. 
the only way he could suffer and be tempted in the ways that he was, was if he was a human being. The tempted and tried Christ is, in fact, a very human Christ, a Christ we all can identify with. And that, I think, is the deeper underlying meaning of this story. And with that in mind, I want to suggest an alternative reading here this morning. Uh, this is a parable I created based upon this story, uh, and I've shared it before. Um, and I think this parable draws out this idea of Christ's humanity. Um, think of this as just another mimetic take on a story that's already a mimetic take on the Exodus story. I'm just adding to the mimetic layers here, right? I'm just participating in the mimetic tradition that is this story. And so here's my parable. After Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, uh, he stood on the banks of the river full of the Holy Spirit and confident that he could begin the work that God had called him to. But soon his thoughts turned to Jerusalem and all of the resistance and opposition and threats that he knew he would face there. It didn't take long for the joy of his baptism to give way to anxiety, indecision. And so feeling distraught, he ventured out into the wilderness alone to fast and pray and to decide what he was to do next. For days, he ate and drank nothing. Eventually, he's overcome by hunger and thirst and the hot desert sun. And he faints. He experiences what we would call heat stroke or sunstroke. While unconscious, he's delirious, and he has this terrifying vision of a demon that interrogates him with all kinds of questions and doubts that make him doubt himself and even doubt God. Eventually, a Samaritan finds Jesus unconscious, barely alive, lying in the bottom of a canyon. The Samaritan goes to him, puts him on the back of his donkey, takes him to an inn, and pays the innkeeper a considerable sum to nurse Jesus back to health. Days later, when he awakens, he's astonished that he's survived his desert ordeal, and he's deeply moved when the innkeeper tells him that it was a Samaritan of all people <laughs> that saved his life and brought him there and, and paid for his recuperation. Jesus takes all this as a sign that God is truly with him and decides that he should begin his ministry. And upon leaving the inn, the innkeeper watches Jesus walk away down the road. And as he's watching, he's moved with pity. And he says to himself, what a strange and sad man. What could drive someone? What, what problems could drive someone out into the desert alone with no food or water in order to solve them? What, what problems could drive such a man out into the middle of nowhere and nearly kill himself in the process? What demons must he be haunted by? What devils must he be wrestling with? That's, that's my parable. <laughs> um, and the reason why I like it and came up with it is because it suggests that the demons that haunted Jesus were really of his own making, which I think is one of the underlying truths of this passage. The lesson is that 
the temptations that often beset us, they're not coming from outside of ourselves, like demons somewhere out there. But rather, they come from within us, and they're of our own making. The fact is, you cannot be tempted by what you don't desire. And no one can make you doubt what you're certain of. You can't be tempted, really, by what you don't desire. And no one can make you doubt what you're certain of. In other words, Satan was only able to tempt Jesus with wealth, fame, and power because Jesus must have actually, perhaps unconsciously, really desired wealth, fame, and power. Satan was only able to you know, tempt Jesus with doubt because part of Jesus was uncertain and full of doubt about God or about who he was. Again, you can't be tempted by what you don't desire. No one can make you doubt what you're certain of. What the desert trial really revealed was a very human Christ, one that struggles with demons of his own making, just like the rest of us. And I realize this may be a very strange idea, maybe not in this church, <laughs> but in many contexts, Christian contexts, this is a very strange idea, this idea of Jesus struggling with questions and doubts. Jesus is supposed to be God, right? And yet here we find Jesus doubting God, questioning God, despairing of God, kind of like he did on the cross. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is Jesus. And here we find Jesus doubting God. This idea of God doubting God. Jesus is supposed to be God, right? God questioning God. God despairing of God. But perhaps this, is, this not only humanizes Jesus, but reveals the deeper paradox of Christianity. The paradox is perhaps... We are actually closest to Christ when we experience doubt and temptations like he did. When, when God feels the furthest away from us and we feel like we are lost in a desert wilderness, and beset by devils, it's actually then that we are most closely communing with Christ. The felt absence of God is actually the presence of Christ. The felt absence of God is actually the, the presence of Christ. And I think this can be a source of great comfort if we let it be. And I, and I, I think this is the deeper lesson of Jesus' temptation and fast in the desert, and it's, it's part of what Lent, I think, is all about. And with that in mind, let's partake now in the Lord's Supper, which has been seen in a long, for a long time in church history and part of church tradition as symbolic of the manna, that fell from heaven in, in the desert, according to the Exodus story, right? Christ's body, we're told, is like the manna that fell from heaven. And Jesus's blood, symbolized, of course, in the grape juice, is like the water that gushed from the rock after Moses struck it in the desert, just as Jesus's side was pierced by a Roman soldier's sword upon the cross and blood gushed out. It's pretty gory, this faith of ours, actually. But this ritual, this sacrament is emblematic, symbolic, mimetic of the Exodus story, too. Let's meditate on that now as we receive the Lord's Supper.
Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So, uh, any questions or comments today about uh, what we talked about? And that goes for anybody online as well. You can always unmute. Um, yeah, anybody want to talk about Jesus' desert trial or mimetic tradition or any of that stuff? Or Lent? Yeah, Anne. I'm just going to hand you a mic here so people online can hear you too. Hi. Um, views Christ as, quote, fully human, fully divine, when in reality, the way it's taught is he's fully divine and a token amount human in, in terms of our experience of how, how we're, oh, right. Yeah. It's presented as his trials are like, you know, yeah, they, they're passing. Um, but what, and the way you're presenting it is, is almost flipped in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, and I think that's because we can't even comprehend fully one thing and fully another, because right. that doesn't logically make sense. How do you reconcile those two? Like, where is the balance? Between oh, that's those? a great question. Yeah, um, you can hang on to it for a second in case you have any follow-up. Um, yeah, no, for those of you who didn't hear her question completely on, online, um, she's asking about how, because church tradition often holds that Jesus was fully human, fully divine, but we often just focus on the divine part and with the parts where Jesus is exhibiting humanity, specifically like in this story in the cross, it's often seen as like, you know, um, well, that was just the human side of Jesus that was suffering or doubting. The, the, the God side knew everything was under control and everything was going to be okay or something like that. Yeah, no, I, and as far as, and you're right to point out that you know, in some ways, there, I, I guess the way I, I reconcile that balance is by just, again, you're right, I put everything on the humanity of Christ and this idea that we shouldn't think of his humanity as not being divine. And I think that's one of the most radical things about Christianity is that, you know, God became human so that human beings could see themselves as divine. I mean, there's this idea that you know, to be human is to be divine. There isn't a separation. It's, we need to get rid of this kind of modern dualistic way, perhaps platonic uh, dualistic way of, of thinking about that. But yeah, it is, is, it's definitely more radical, I think, to um, really embrace this idea of, you know, Jesus somehow being God and yet God himself being weak and powerless. And for me, that actually, now of course, that's unsettling for conservatives. Uh, I don't mean to pick on conservatives, but that's just the shorthand way of putting it. Yeah, that's scary. But I think it's there's so much more meaning and power, liberative sort of aspect to this idea um, of getting set free from this kind of supreme, supreme being idea of God. And I talk about this a lot, you know, and I think this story, and particularly the cross, liberate us from this idea that God is all-powerful. 
but rather this God revealed in the suffering Christ is this God that meets not just, you know, shares in our suffering as a kind of theater, you know, this idea that, yeah, Jesus experienced some suffering here, but it was just the human side. The reality is God's all powerful. You know, no, in, in Christianity, God is, is weak compared, you know, in, in, in the world's definition of what's weak and strong. You know, God is not all, the, the God revealed in Christ is not all powerful. Um, you know, so I, you know, again, that's, that's a particular reading of the gospel that's been around for a long time. It's definitely more in line with the, some of the medieval mystics, but um, that's, that's how I, I get around it. I mean, that's, that's how I look at it. Um, does that make sense? Does, it, yeah. does that, yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah. Other thoughts today or questions about any of that? Oh, Jason, there you are. Okay. Mike. I bounced off hard from this parable. I think it's, and I might just be in a bad mood, but it's <laughs> kind of it's okay. clearly uh, fictional. Nobody lives 40 days without eating and drinking. Right. Um, having Bible sword fights with the devil and then saying no about angels saving you. But then as soon as you're done, the angels come and save you. Yeah. Um, it, it seems really obvious that it's something that some author put in who was a Jew who, you know, knew the Torah really well. And um, yeah, it just, I don't even know why I'm saying that. I just think it's like, it just struck me as really silly today. That's cool. That's, that's fine, man. Yeah, it's, it's definitely that. Um, that's fair. Sorry. <laughs> no, man, that's, that's cool. Yeah, it is, you know, um, there's no, I, I think, you know, especially because we come to the text, um, maybe with the presuppositions we do or the, or the background we do, it's harder for us to read it. But it is antithetical. You're right, this idea that he rejects you know, um, you know, accessing the angelic world for help, and then they show up anyway, you know, yeah. Yes, 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 the text is problematic that way. Um, well, thank you for that comment. Um, other, other comments or questions? Yeah, Randy and Steve, cool. Oh, there we go. All right, Randy was first, and then you, Steve. Sure. Um, just quick, a quick question about mimesis. Mimesis, mimesis yeah. Um, I've heard that before too that the creation story was taken from the epic of Gilgamesh and yep. others. Um, if they were like illiterate back those, how would they know about the epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah, if they didn't have any written sources. I mean, yeah. Well, all those stories began were told as oral traditions, meaning stories passed down vocally, you know, verbally, um, from you know one generation to another, but there were, these these stories were also written down. Some of the earliest tablets of the Epic of Gilgamesh are written in Akkadian on stone and predate Genesis. So, I mean, some of these stories were written down and we do have some of those still or fragments of those still. Um, so it's not fair to say that it was entirely just oral tradition. Um, there was a mixture of both, you know, a writing tradition of these stories, but also, just an oral tradition, but yeah, um, 
you know, the story of Noah's Ark is absolutely based on the Epic of Gilgamesh and parts of Genesis creation story are as well, like the serpent, the presence of the serpent. That's also in the Epic of Gilgamesh. But there's others. There's Enki and Ninhursag, and then there's the Enuma Elish, which I think is closer to the Genesis creation story than the Epic of Gilgamesh. But yeah, yeah, cool. All right, Steve. I was just going to comment on, I've, I've always had trouble with the um, wilderness story as well. Mm. Uh, one thing I've been reading about recently is an idea that uh, Jesus took some time and went and studied with the Essenes. I don't know oh. if this is something that you've uh, encountered at all. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there, which are largely from the Essenes, um, there's a lot of similar sayings to things that Jesus taught later in his life and that he might have retreated and spent some time with this community, done some teaching, some internal wrestling, we could say, some spiritual wrestling, and then step back. And that the wilderness story is part of how we've uh, historically or how the biblical writers explained this sort of mm. shift in his theology Interesting. Um, as he spent some time sort of studying because they were very apocalyptic. They, yeah. um, you know, they had a lot of sort of similar ideas. Was, was John the Baptist supposedly part of that community? That's, there's an idea there, yeah. yeah. That, that when John the Baptist was in the wilderness, that he was with the Essenes. Yeah. They were sort of separated from the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we often think, oh, Jesus just, it was pure revelation. He, these were all original ideas to him, but they weren't. When we actually dig back and into so, yeah. yeah. That is, again, on the humanity of Jesus, but that is an idea that I came across not long ago, and I was like, oh, I, that really resonates pretty much. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so complicated. <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah, Tom. Just a comment. I was thinking about how you're talking about uh, language and magic and it having this yeah. In the ancient world, having this sense of being imbued with magic, it just made me think about contracts and laws and the financial world and all these ways that we use language. And that if you understand these cryptic, mysterious, magical ways of speaking and writing, you too can shape reality as you yeah. see it by writing these horrible contracts and terrible laws. And Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's fair to say we still have kind of a magical understanding of language and the power thereof even today, but you know, think about in that world, how much more profound that was, you know? Um, yeah, and that's, good. that's a good point. I'm glad that uh, resonated with you. Um, yes, I know you. Um, and apologize, because I feel like I'm a little like brain dead these days. And so maybe this won't even make sense, but um, I was just thinking towards like what Steve was saying is, um, like, could this possibly be just viewed as a metaphor of like Jesus being in the desert? Like that, you know, we were always taught like literally he was out in the desert wandering around. Like, you know, nowadays, like how, you know, we talk to people and say like, yeah, I'm just like really in a, you know, I'm in the desert, in the you know, wilderness. I'm in the wilderness. Like, yeah. you know, like using language to talk about like, I'm in a place of, you know, I'm in a dry, I'm during a dry spell. Like I'm not literally right. in a dry spell, <laughs> yeah. um, but just using it as a metaphor for where you're at, that maybe he was kind of, you know, away from society, away from where he normally was, maybe with these other people or, you know, whatever. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. Um, look, there's, there's, as uh, our friend John Caputo says, there is no such thing as just a metaphor. There is no such thing as just a symbol. In other words, all of life, language, cognition, it's, it's all rooted in, in the symbolic. It's all rooted in metaphor. Um, meaning itself, everything about our lives, we don't have to don't think about that, but everything about reality is constructed out of language and what is language, but you know, sounds coming out of my throat right now and mouth that you're able to interpret as ideas. I mean, it's all, it's all metaphor, it's all symbols. Reality itself is constructed entirely out of symbols and metaphors. Why shouldn't our understand, you know, why shouldn't our religions be as well? In fact, perhaps our religions flaunt it more or celebrate it more, you know, uh, revel in it more. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, again, there's no such thing as just a metaphor. It's just a symbol. It's all symbolic. All of life is symbolic and metaphorical. It's how we ascribe meaning to things because it cares. What's that? Here. So people can online can hear you. I just think that so often, especially when we're talking about like the Bible and the way that, you know, maybe some of us were taught in our upbringing versus how we think of things now, like there's so much pressure sometimes to feel like this either has to be true or not true. Right. It has to be historical or not historical. And that I think one of the big things that I've learned over kind of my deconstruction is that that's not the case, that something doesn't have to have literally happened in order for it to have meaning and for it to be true that this story, you know, as you know, Jason was saying, like, it doesn't mean that it has to be false for it to not have literally happened, that it doesn't have meaning just because it may not have literally happened the way that we thought it and did. It, yeah. And it might, might, you might not like that story like Jason today. <laughs> Just because it maybe like literally didn't happen the way that it did doesn't mean that it's, you know, false or incorrect right. or was, you know, meant to lead people astray in the Bible or, or whatever. Yeah, that, that presupposition that if it's not historical, it's not meaningful is entirely modern. That is entirely modern and, and uh, again, a product of the Enlightenment and the way that we bifurcate our world into categories like the scientific and the unscientific the historical and the non-historical, you know, you know, fictional, fiction, non-fiction, right? We go to every bookstore, you have fiction and non-fiction, right? We, we bifurcate our entire world into those categories now. But the, there's tons of evidence the ancients just didn't think in those terms. And, and perhaps part of this postmodern turn in Christianity that we're a part of is about recapturing that and, and paying and, and returning to that. Uh, and, the, and then, again, the deep end of the pool on this is realizing that all of reality is a symbolic construct. <laughs> you are living in a simulation created by your own mind at the very least, if not by aliens somewhere. Um, but that's maybe a whole different conversation. Um, but yeah, really, really good comments. Um, anybody else today want to jump into that? Oh, Max, yeah. Everybody's having a turn. This is good. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to share the uh, John Dominic Crossing quote that that reminded me of. Uh, oh, yeah, please. Yeah. He says, my point, once again, is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. I, I wish he would have added to that. Well, they did take them literally, but they're, they didn't think in the categories like we do between literal and figurative because they didn't. They didn't have those categories. Those are pretty much modern categories. So it's 
it's not even fair to say that they didn't take him literally because literal what does that even mean like you know you know you know what i mean yeah that's good stuff uh yeah ashley when i think about this passage i think about um i think it has a lot of helpful new information or just advice on how to deal with like a spiritual wilderness not to be too Christian here, but um, I think- how, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us are going through a spiritual wilderness yeah. through the pandemic, and it's not, it's so much longer than 40 days. Um, I think some people go through spiritual wildernesses in relationships, maybe work, maybe in being a child in a home where it's, it feels like a spiritual wilderness. And so I think there's a lot that can be said to that. Like, how do you nourish yourself spiritually when you feel like you're walking through a wilderness? How do you um, keep yourself going um, when you are trying to recover from an addiction and you feel spiritually lost and all that? So I just think that there's a lot yeah. to speak. Yeah, and the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is a God who meets us in, the world, in our wildernesses, right? Who shares in our sufferings, who suffers as we do, this, this, this so-called weak God found in the crucified Christ, in the you know, tempted and tried Christ. This is the God that meets us in the wilderness. And which is to say that that God, you know, incarnates, is incarnated through us as we meet each other in each other's wildernesses and share in each other's sufferings. Christ is with us because we are with each other. Or two or more are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst, you know. This is, th these kinds of ideas of thinking about God as a God of, you know, weakness and powerlessness as in the, way, in the way that we all are weak and powerless in the world. It's a radical, as we get back to Anne's comment from earlier, it's a radical way of, of understanding God in a way that is antithetical to orthodoxy and conservative or traditional Christianity that wants the all-powerful God that solves all our problems. Yeah. 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 Bell Hooks once said in her book, All About Love, to love someone is to nourish them. To love someone is to nourish them spiritually. That's beautiful. And, but that doesn't always, for Jesus in this story, it was scripture, scripture kept yeah. him going. But for other people, it could be nature, art, all of that. Yeah. And it all seems trivial. Yeah. But when you realize the power that that stuff has, those experiences have to really nourish your soul in a wilderness, yeah. um, I think it should be prioritized. Yeah. And, and again, just stay with the metaphor of wilderness isn't being in deconstruction, that sense of being in exile, being, you know, in the wilderness. But the wilderness is our home. You know, maybe that's the, the deeper lesson that we're not getting out of this wilderness. The whole world is a wilderness. Life is a wilderness, but the wilderness can be our home. We can, you know, we, we, can, we can live there with each other, you know? We can nourish each other in the wilderness um, as Christ himself was nourished in the wilderness. In a way, he never got out of the wilderness. This idea that, oh, he went to Jerusalem and he's out of the wilderness. No, the cross was before him, which was another wilderness, you know? And um, yeah, it's interesting. Lots of metaphor here, yeah. All right, any, any other comments today, questions? Really good conversation. All right. Well, I guess a proper benediction for today would be, you know, go in peace as we walk through the wilderness together. <laughs> thanks for being everybody. And, and thanks to all of you who are joining us via Zoom.
Blessings on you as well. Talk to you soon. Thank you.